in any normal world back, you know, 50 years ago before the internet, it would be weird for somebody to walk off the street and just interrupt you in your office. Yet today, that's what inboxes have become for most CEOs. Welcome to part two of the season finale of the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Today, we're looking back at some of the most memorable conversations from this year. We don't hire people to grow our businesses. We hire people to buy back our time. If we do the second, we get the first. But if we do the first, we don't always get the second. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. On this episode, we're looking back at some of our most iconic guests and insightful moments from this season of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. From innovative entrepreneurs to chart-topping artists, this episode features the best of the best. I was just fond of having my song on the local radio station. This record took me around the world to places I couldn't even pronounce. And some of my peers that I looked up to that was very successful had never been there. And they would tell me like, man, don't take this for granted because I've never done this and things like that. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick off this episode, we're revisiting my conversation with Dan Fleischman, serial entrepreneur, marketing expert, and the youngest founder of a publicly traded company in history. During our conversation, Dan shared the start of his first business that he turned into a multi-million dollar brand. So from 15 to 17, I'd saved up $43,000 over those three years. That's what I was going to use for SDSU to go to college. And at 17 and a half, I started the clothing brand. I trademarked the catchphrase, who's your daddy? And for 300 different products, a bunch of different trademarks in different countries, we started selling t-shirts and made 100 t-shirts, 15 bucks each, sold for 1,500 bucks. I'm a millionaire. I was like, oh my God, in high school, I feel like a millionaire. Went to our first trade show called Magic in Las Vegas. We wrote over a million dollars in orders and didn't have a manufacturer to make them. That's where like the business of like learning how to like start a business and build a business and raise capital, et cetera. It all started from that crazy moment in time. And then when we were 19 years old, we got a $9.5 million licensing deal from Starter Apparel. And so now all of a sudden we got a three-year deal, $9.5 million a year, uh, sorry, $9.5 million for three years, 8% of gross sales minimum, plus 3% for marketing fees, plus they pay for all production. So they made us jeans and hats and shoes and shirts. So they're spending like a million or two a year just in production for us to save us sample costs and design costs. I just got thrown into it. You know, like you know, I learned the hard way, the exciting way. There's no social media back then. There's no cell phones back then. So like, this is 1999, 2000. I'm in it. I'm living and breathing it. And I think that's what allowed me to learn a lot of these things. 
I wish I had social media. I wish I could listen to Michael on a podcast, right? I wish I could have had that information back then, but a podcast didn't exist. A cell phone didn't exist. Social media didn't exist. And so just being immersing myself in the business is how it all started. For many people that don't know you, I think one of the first things they hear about you is that you're the youngest founder of a publicly traded company in history, right? So I think that um, that in itself is, is a very interesting claim to fame. Um, what was that process like? So that same brand I was talking about, I then started Energy Drinks under the same name and created the first like flavored drinks. We made a cranberry pineapple and a green tea. And we're also zero sugar, zero carbs, zero calories back then. This is 2005. Make the energy drink, bright yellow can, bright red can, bright green can. So we stand out because our competitors, Red Bull, Monster, Rockstar, silver, black, black. So when you look at a, a cooler, I want it to be bright yellow, bright green, bright red. So when you walked by, you saw our brand and the big catchphrase on it. We just looked at the fact that they were all three to four bucks. We made ours two bucks. We made it more efficient, more price sensitive, et cetera, and made good flavors with no sugar, no carbs, no calories. Spent like a year and a half of legal and accounting. It's almost like $2 million in two years of legal to go public. Even though we were going the fast route of going public, which is reverse merger, acquire a company, et cetera, fast was two years and $2 million. And we're 23 years old and we go public, right? This is April of 2005. Going public changed my life. You know, social media is just getting started. Like MySpace is existing. Like face the Facebook is around, but there's no real like true social media platforms like the way they are today. And so going public, I'm doing general mainstream news like CNN, Fox News, like those type of channels, doing press with Forbes magazine, like doing like traditional press where people actually used to read magazines everywhere all the time. Maxim Magazine, you know, like doing that route. And so that changed my life because it forced me to grow up in a different fashion of understanding legal and accounting. So every quarter, there was a, a 10Q and an 8K filing. And then every quarter while we're doing those filings, we had auditors auditing our auditors. I had to look at it. The lawyers looked at it. Our CFO looked at it. We'd submit it to an auditor who then got audited by another auditor. And we would submit it to the SEC every quarter week of my life every month was literally living inside of lawyers' offices. I was spending 600K to a million dollars a year just in legal and, like legal and accounting, not counting my normal legal and accounting, just for this, just for being public. And so again, with inflation, that's probably a lot more now. That's you know, 15, 20 years ago. I learned the how to deal with adults, how to deal with stress, how to deal with you know insane chaos, how to deal with the legal system in general for the SEC because they're very particular about everything. And if you do one wrong thing, you don't pass go, you don't collect $200, you go to jail. You have to do everything right and explain everything very well and clean cut. And so I learned a lot of my processes for now. I went through that training camp, you know, 15, 20 years ago. This is something you went through even in your 20s. You mentioned earlier that kind of being thrown into it. Is it, is it fair to say, I guess, thrown into it or were you throwing yourself into it? I'm just wondering, like picking up a lot of these lessons just as an entrepreneur, was it just really through experience or were you learning some other way? I didn't have a choice. So when I say throw, throw it into it, I'm throwing myself into the fire because there's no other choice and there's nobody else to look at. Me and my business partner, my friend, that was it. There was no like high level CEOs. There was no masterminds and mentors and podcasts. There's books that existed, but I wasn't in the reading mode. I was a 23, 24 year old kid, right? Like I'm in full steam ahead mode, learning from experience and like asking the advice. There was mentors in the fact that in every meeting, I was asking questions and advice all the time because the meetings were long like really long because it's against legal accounting, SEC, public filings, investment bankers, huge amounts of capital. Like there's a lot involved. And so during those meetings, I was asking questions left and right. 
And I never tried to act like I knew anything or everything, especially in the room with all these smart people. So the investment bankers, there was a manufacturer that helped us with all of our clothing. He used to do hundreds of millions of dollars. So listening to them and understanding what the process they've gone through, why they do what they do, how they make their decisions. They would set me up with relationships to help fix things because I went through some bad people along the way trying to take advantage of me. Not even just trying. They did take advantage of me because I was a kid. Immersing myself was the real world university. Sounds like just being in those rooms would, would in later shape what would end up being some of the masterminds and the things you've been involved with. Right. And, and I'm curious, with, with a lot of the different businesses, I mean, with your background, everything from the celebrity video greetings company, the online poker website, to the mobile apps, the tech companies, the consumer brands, you know, et cetera. There's been so many wins that you're a part of, everything below the iceberg, where not everything has been a huge win, not everything has been a successful. Um, are you open to sharing any particularly memorable or challenging endeavor that just didn't go your way? I will share anything and everything. I actually like talking about the bad stuff because it helps people, because not enough people talk about the bad stuff because everybody acts like they're perfect and they're rah, everything's perfect all the time. Let's talk about the bad stuff. Victory Poker. So I started Victory Poker. This is like 2009 range uh, with Dan Bilzerian, DJ Steve Aoki, Playboy Playmates, Poker Pros, TV stars. We're all over TV every single week, every month. We're up against Poker Stars in full tilt. Poker Stars is doing $8 million a day in revenue. Full Tilt is doing $4 million a day in revenue, to give you perspective. I started the whole company with $2.4 million. I got about half a day of revenue as well. <laughs> is what I'm starting the whole business with to go battle with them because it is a battle for time and focus from poker players all over the world. There's 550 poker sites at the time. Bam, we become top five poker site in the world the first 10 months. Four months later, we get offered this crazy deal. Someone wants to, a big competitor, wants to be a strategic investor in us and help us on their platform. We're going to go to Costa Rica, April 19th. It's going to be amazing. $65 million valuation. We're doing seven figures a month in revenue. I only have five employees, so you can get my overhead is nothing. I don't have an office. Like, our overhead is nothing. Seven figures a month. So it sounds cool, right? April 15th, four days prior, I get a phone call at 10, 10 a.m. from Dan Bilzerian. Where are you? I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm, at, I'm actually at the Bellagio. I'm going to go to a meeting with a billionaire at 12 o'clock. That's why I'm here. This is the guy that invented the slot machine loyalty card and has the patents to the Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy slot machines. He's like a casino gaming legend. I got a poker site. I got to have a meeting with him at 12 o'clock. 10, 10 a.m. I'm getting yelled at by Bilzerian saying, why aren't you in Malta? We got to fix this. The whole poker world just shut down. I'm like, what are you talking about? Turn on the news. Every channel is. FBI seizes Full Tilt, Poker Stars, and Absolute Poker's world. They seize their company and seize their bank accounts in 16 countries, including like non-extradition countries that there's no peace treaties, took their money there too. Billions of dollars is gone. I walk in, it's 12 o'clock. I'm meeting with this guy named Edward Fishman, multi-zillionaire. And as soon as I walk in the door, it's my first time meeting him at the Hard Rock. Open the door, he's like, man, you look like somebody died. The whole poker industry just kind of died. Uh, turn on the news. And so we haven't said hi or shaken hands. Turns on the news. There it is. Online poker is shut down. Every channel is talking about it. So he puts Steve Wynn on speakerphone. <laughs> just call Steve Wynn casually. Steve's upset because he'd recently done a deal with Full poker for the wind casinos. So there's just chaos going on. I had a decision to make. I can sit on the floor and cry about it or do what I did. I did like 83 interviews that week. I manually paid back 41,000 players. So I didn't trust what the government was going to do. They seized everything from my competitors. I'm technically like number one or number two in the world right now. That's because my competitors are now dead or in jail. 
right? So like, I don't want to win that way. Lose my company overnight, shut down. I don't even have to shut down. I never got in trouble at all. I never got a phone call, a letter, nothing happened. That moment made me realize the scoreboard is a scoreboard. Like my loss is there. Whether it's, whether I want to sit and blame my competitors or blame the government, you can blame whoever you want. The scoreboard is a scoreboard. The, the L is still there, however you want to call it. And so instead of sitting on the floor and crying, I was licking my wounds and moved forward. That tragic moment actually was the best thing that ever happened. I started my social media agency. I started elevator nights to start throwing free events. I started becoming an angel investor. I've invested in 43 companies since then. I started my charity, Model Citizen Fund, which has been 11 years now or 12 years now for helping the homeless. None of those would have happened or they would have been delayed for years if I was still doing the poker site. And so I'm not just trying to find a silver lining. It really is the best thing that ever happened to me from a business and personal career perspective. And it helped tens of millions of people from the charity world because of the fact that I got to become this free agent that was never going to have all my eggs in one basket again. I was never going to be all in on any one project ever again. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I, I saw you posted recently on social media um, that when there's chaos, if you stay calm, there are opportunities. You were sharing kind of the, the case study of one of your other businesses, particularly during COVID. I know everyone's got a COVID story, but if you had, I think it was Everbowl, and seeing that rapidly expand, if you can kind of share what happened during COVID, how you guys were able to pivot and uh, and grow from that. So Everbowl is an acai bowl chain. At the time, there was like 23 locations and mostly based in San Diego, California, and then some in some stadiums. I had invested 500K. I raised $5 billion for them through a bunch of my friends and mastermind members. Right there, like 2019, we just raised 5 million bucks and they're expanding. They're ready to grow. March 2020, the whole world shuts down, especially for restaurants. We have decisions to make. We have three or 400 employees, 23-ish locations, and we're not allowed to have humans walk it by our restaurant. So... Um, and we don't know when the two weeks is going to actually be two weeks or not from the government. We don't know what's going to happen. And so Jeff Fenster, the CEO, I'm obsessed with him as like a CEO, like the way he pivoted so fast. He calls me, he's like, hey, I can make like 90,000 packs of acai, frozen packs that we can ship to people. What do you think? What should we do? I was like, oh yeah, we invested $3 million into a company called Icon Meals. They ship frozen meals. I'm in a group chat with Todd Abrams. It'll be great. They'll give you some advice on how to ship meals. Group chat them. They start talking. They're extra bored because there's no office right now. So they got time to talk all day. And then Todd's like, hey, what if you sold frozen acai on QVC television? Jeff was like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. A few weeks later, there is Jeff. I got recordings of him on QVC selling out $150,000 in 11 minutes. And then they keep having to come back over and over. Me and my friends, we decided to buy the existing locations to help make sure the company has an extra couple million bucks. Now, Jeff's got, you know, everyone has a couple million bucks extra. They're selling 150K a week in frozen packs. As COVID is in that scenario, well, we're like, why don't we go get some leases? Jeff is like, we're, the country's going to reopen. Let's go sign leases and get great deals. So he goes around the country and gets 297 leases. You know why? Nobody else is trying to lease anything, especially not restaurants, in the middle of a shutdown. So he's getting like, six months of TI or free rent, 12 months free rent, 12 months of free rent from the date of reopening the country, which was a crazy deal because nobody knows when it's going to reopen. They just want people to sign leases. And here we are, a reputable brand, 20-ish stores signing leases. That terrible moment, that tragedy of the whole world shutting down led to Everbowl getting way more capital, way more locations. Fast forward two years, we got 70 locations open. So 23 to 70, 400 locations have been paid for. 
tens of millions of dollars more financing, all from this tragedy, we're able to grow like a phoenix from the ashes. Next up, we're joined by Dan Martell, award-winning entrepreneur and the best-selling author of Buy Back Your Time. While the hustle mentality is common amongst entrepreneurs, it can only take you so far. During our conversation, Dan shared the transformative power of creating leverage. Just so people understand, my license plate on one of my cars, JFDI, right? So you guys can Google to figure out what that stands for. But I love the idea that for me, one of my superpowers is hear a strategy like some of you guys will hear today and, and go and take action on it, right? Or I see a problem and I want to fix it, or there's an opportunity I'm going to pounce on it. And those, that is actually like a powerful, positive trait. But like most things, your superpower can quickly become your Achilles heel as you grow, right? That same see something, take action also undermines your team if you're doing their job. Also eats in your calendar and moves you away from doing projects or working on things that could actually progress your business if you're tied up in the minutiae and minuscule that's not designed to to build your business. What happened for me is I had to understand how time works, that that time is the same for every person in the world. There's folks out there that have incredible output in regards to what they can get done with their time and other people struggle to have any meaningful output. So if it's not time, what is the differentiator? And I've discovered it's leverage, right? That's the equation. Time's a constant. Time's leverage equals output. Output's variable. And leverage really comes down to these four C's, I call them, right? And I learned this from one of my mentors, this guy named Naval Ravikant. And it's content, right? What, what I would say is standard operating procedures is content. This podcast is content, right? Like it's got so much leverage. 10 million people could watch it or 10 people could watch it. And it does, there's no incremental cost of doing that. A lot of businesses talk about franchise prototypes or standard operating procedures. That's all content. The second C is capital, right? We all know it takes money to make money. So like, how do we leverage capital to do more? The third is code. When we think of automation, software, every business has, you know, software to run your CRM to the billing to you know, workflows, automation, and today AI would be a big part of the code component of it. And then the fourth is collaboration, which is people. And like, how do we properly evaluate opportunities to buy back our time from our calendar so that we can replenish that activity with things that light us up, what I call green time, or make us more money, or ideally both. And I mean, I think that's the game that most entrepreneurs don't realize that they're actually playing when they start a business is when you go from like being an employee where you're trading time for money and you go to entrepreneur where you're trading money for time, right? Just through the nature of building a business, people are paying you for an outcome or widget. And then you're giving them that thing for money. And then you hire people to buy back your time. I mean, that's the game that every entrepreneur is playing. I just don't think that many of them understand that. And if they did, they would just play it better. And that's what the book unpacks is the process that I call the buyback loop so that you can avoid getting stuck and hitting the pain line where the more you grow your business, the more pain you're going to experience. And it's kind of like in the words of Ray Dalio, it's like, I think it's like pain plus reflection equals progress. And you talk about hitting the pain line, which a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes don't even realize that they've hit, but this seems like the catalyst behind a lot of change. If you, if you could elaborate on that. Pain line is a point where the more you grow, the more hurt you're going to have in your life. And this is like every entrepreneur asks them, if you were to triple your business next month, what would break? Well, my calendar would break. I wouldn't be able to deliver on it. 
my team would hate me, my customers, my current customers would be upset, et cetera. And it's like, perfect. Because of that, there's probably a high probability that you have opportunities, partnerships, you have an email you've been sitting on, you have potentially raising some money from a, an investment partner, whatever it is that you're dragging your feet to take action on because of this pain, right? Or you're in the pain right now and you just want it to stop. And usually at that point, most entrepreneurs do one of three things. I call them the three S's. They either decide to stall. I don't want to grow anymore. Is it okay if I have a business and I don't want to grow? And and the answer is everything's okay. There's no right or wrong in the world, but you just got to ask, you got to choose your hard. For some people, working at a job is really hard. For other people, building a business is really hard. But choosing to stall, here's what I know, your customer's demand of like better, faster, cheaper is not going to go away. So are you innovating your product or services? Your team desire for progression and enhancement. So like if you just think about like your team, if they don't feel like there's an opportunity for them to grow in that role, especially your best people, they'll leave. I, I always say this to people, the job of a leader is to have a vision that's big enough for everyone on their team's dreams and goals to fit inside of. If that's not true, then your best people will go find a team where that can be true. The other S is sell, right? Where I get this call every week from friends of mine where they're like, hey man, I think I just, I'm ready to sell. And I go, okay, cool. I'm not saying you can't. I, I literally had a call today with one of my cousins. He has a $5 million a year distributor company. And he's like, I think I'm ready to exit. And when I asked him, why do you want to sell? And we list the top three things. These are all things that should have been solved by now at this stage in his business if he was following the buyback principle, right? So selling gets you to discover what your complexity ceiling is. And what I've discovered is people think, well, if I get into this other business opportunity or if I sell and I go do this, it's going to be easier. And the truth is it never is easier. You just got better. So your complexity ceiling is now visible. You know what it is. This is it. It's 5 million in revenue. It's a team of six people. And I just don't know how to manage more. Well, go do another business. You're going to hit that same ceiling, right? So like selling isn't always the answer. And then the third S is sabotage, which is unfortunately where I see entrepreneurs really miss opportunities to improve their business or grow their business or honestly buy back their time because they are afraid of the future. They sabotage their success and it's subconscious. It's not something they deliberately make a decision around. But when I you know, see people make decisions. I go, why did you decide to do that? Usually if you ask that question enough times, why, 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 you'll get to a belief of fear. Sometimes it's a fear of success. Some people are literally scared of the potential that they could create because they're afraid of that new standard, right? Some people are scared to build a million dollar company. They won't admit it. They may not even know that it's there because, well, now that I have a million dollar company, what if I don't? What if I mess it up? I can fall from a higher place. And I think that's, those are the three S's that usually people get to when they hit the pain line that the book clearly addresses and walks through a lot of the mindset blockers and the beliefs that are holding people back from buying back their time. And I know you mentioned it a few times, just the, the buyback principle. So, the, so people who are not familiar with this, when you, know, you say this throughout the book, and I listened to the audio books, I, I heard you mention numerous times of hiring not to grow the business, but to hiring to buy back your time. Can you elaborate on that and what kind of the difference in the, and almost like the mindset shift is with that approach? The big idea that I share with people is the concept of calendar over capacity. Most people, when they hire individuals to help them in their business, contractors, team members, part-time people, full-time, it doesn't matter. 
when you spend dollars, labor to hire somebody, most people do it to add capacity to their business, right? I've got demand now. I need help with shipping. I need help with writing more code. I need designers because I have a design agency or a PR agency or whatever. You know, I've got somebody that does fabrication, whatever it is. They're like, I've got a capacity problem. The challenge with that is you could hire people to add your capacity, but it actually doesn't make your life better. And if anything, it adds complexity. More people means more things you have to manage. And if you haven't bought back the lower value tasks to free up your time to go do the higher value stuff, then that's where you end up building a business that might have grown in top line revenue, but you actually make less profit because you hire out a sequence, right? In the book, I talk about this concept called the replacement ladder. And it's really the sequence of hires in the order that costs the least amount of money, dollars, to gain back the most amount of time, like freedom, to then for you as the CEO to do the activities that light you up, that make you the most money. And if you keep making your trades using the buyback principle through that lens, then it's almost impossible for you to grow the business and not enjoy the process because as you do it, you're literally buying, you're using your calendar as the map, as the auditing place, right? And I teach time and energy audits. Even today, you know, this week, there's one meeting in my calendar that's orange, that's not red, but it ain't green, that I now have to find a way to get out of, either hire somebody or delegate it or cancel it. Honestly, sometimes we just got to delete the moment I do that, now my whole week is exciting. There's no aspect of my week where I'm like doing something that I want to absolutely truly enjoy and love. And that's just a really powerful place to get to. So I just really want to teach people the philosophy of we don't hire people to grow our businesses. We hire people to buy back our time. If we do the second, we get the first. But if we do the first, we don't always get the second. Next up, we revisit my conversation with the former chief talent officer at Netflix, Patty McCord. In her best-selling book, Powerful, Building a Culture of Freedom and Responsibility, Patty delves into the principles that shape the renowned Netflix culture deck. During our conversation, she shared her motivation for putting these insights into writing. Well, you know, after I left Netflix, uh, we had the culture deck, which a lot of people have read. Inside Scoop, that deck took us 10 years to write, and every chapter is built on the chapter before. So when we had, like, these are the behaviors that we think are most important to rely on each other for. And then we said, we're going to have high performance employees, and then we're going to have freedom and responsibility, and then we're going to have context, not control. All those things build on each other. So then when I left Netflix, everybody would throw the deck on the table and say, we want to do that. And it was like, well, <laughs> you know, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a lot of systems. It's a lot of getting rid of things that everybody else does. It's like rethinking best practices. I wrote the book, honestly, to be the uh, hitchhiker's guide to the Netflix culture deck. And I want to go through it, uh, at least some of the some of the highlights, because I, I know early in the book, um, you emphasize that great teams are not created by incentives or procedures or perks, but rather by hiring people who are adults and eager to tack tackle challenges. Now, yeah. two questions on that. One, how do we define adults? <laughs> Do you have any examples uh, maybe an experience at Netflix or anywhere else where this approach led to the formation of a remarkable team? I think we go about it completely backwards. So here's my methodology. If you say in six months, let's use that as a time frame, because we hardly ever use time frames when we're talking about people, right? In six months, if this team was amazing 
and everything was going extraordinarily well, and you made a movie of it, what would be occurring then that's not occurring now, right? Would there be more meetings? Would there be less meetings? Would there be people with heads down just working on code? Would it be that people are cross-functionally communicating better? Would it be that our brand is more important? Whatever it is, what's that? And then you work backwards from there, right? Okay, so if that's going to happen in six months, then we need somebody to be able to do this. They need to be able to do it in that time frame. Then who do we have? And so what you hire for is the delta, right? Somebody who has experience in something we don't know how to do, somebody who has expertise in a particular technology that we don't know, somebody who's curious about something that we're taking for granted, whatever it is. So that becomes, that defining clarification becomes your job description. Not that they have five and a half years of progressive experience managing, that they have the ability to solve that problem in that time frame, right? And so now you want to go into what would that take? And that's who you interview to succeed in that job. Because what happens really, I mean, this is my lifelong experience, is you say, I want to hire somebody who's really smart, who's a a good decision maker, somebody who's thinks on their feet, who's really great at communicating. I want to hire somebody just like me. And then you do. And like hires like hires hires like hires like. And then you wonder why nobody has a new idea. And so when you go back to say, who can solve this problem in this time frame, it's a really different experience when you're interviewing people. It's a really different experience in who you hire. And very often, the person that you hire is going to be not at all like the people that you When you mention um, hiring people who are adults, is that stem from a certain level of emotional maturity or is it relating to something else? It's both. I mean, it's emotional maturity. It's somebody who's willing to take responsibility for the decisions they've made. Right. It's somebody who's willing to learn from their bad decisions. Do you remember, I don't know, five or six years ago, there was this Google brouhaha about this guy who wrote this treatise about women, James Stanamore, women couldn't be great software engineers. And I got a call from, I don't know, USA Today or something. They're like, and this is in the middle of like, what was Google going to do about it? Like, they're like, would you have fired him? I'm like, in a hot minute. Hopefully I wouldn't have hired him. Because you know he was a twit in the interview, right? Who, which woman on the interview team said, oh, he's a great guy. We should absolutely hire him. It's about really thinking about who's going to be great on the team, but it doesn't mean who you're going to like. It's going to mean who's going to add something that you don't have already. It's like any other team, right? If you have the right people in the right place at the right time, you're going to win, right? And if you have yesterday's people for tomorrow's problem, you can't always get there. And it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they're the wrong people. And I know you also, you stressed about the importance of ensuring communication flows up and down within an organization. What are some of the common barriers just to to effective communication within organizations? What, What do leaders run into? How can they overcome this stuff? They listen to whiners without expecting real answers. So here's an example. I think management made a stupid decision. They shouldn't have done this. So I say, 
There's two questions to ask. The second one's most important. The first one is, if you were in management, what decision would you have made? The second one is, if you were in management, what information would you want to have to make the right decision, right? So it's this constant pushing the organization to say, okay, well, think. Problem finders are not very valuable. Problem resolvers, worth their weight in gold. So it's a matter of teaching people that it's, we absolutely want to hear what you have to say. What do you think we should do instead, right? It's just training people to have, respond with, and here's my thoughtful observation about what we should do instead. For those listening, if somebody's asking themselves, well, Patty, if I share all this information with my organization, I worry if, if some may either misinterpret it or take it out of context or that it could somehow backfire on me. Not, not all people, a small handful, perhaps. What, what would you say to that? I would say that's probably pretty uh, common in most organizations. But if you focus on the uh, resolution, I'm going to share this information, but I'm going to tell you what I think would, we could do better, then over time, you're going to have a reputation as a problem solver, not a problem finder. And the problem solvers, we notice, right? I mean, I've been in a lot of executive meetings about, oh man, here's this terrible problem. What are we going to do about it? Who's going to lead it? What about Joe, right? He's unfucked <laughs> a bunch of stuff. And so we should throw him at this again, right? So you develop a reputation that leaders notice that you're able to gather other people around you and solve problems and or at least attack problems, right? And not just do the, it's not my issue. I would say that it takes bravery, mm -hmm. and but bravery is what makes leaders. And I want to go back to something, Patty, I know you mentioned a little bit earlier, just asking your team members to put themselves in a in the founder's shoes. How can, let's say, more established organizations and even their team members adopt this entrepreneurial mindset of just you know, of really asking someone to put themselves in in those shoes? I've heard leaders do this sort of thing, and it hasn't been as you know as received as well by their team members. Um, what, what's a what's a way to bridge the gap? You know, I think that's kind of hokey. <laughs> to be honest with you, you can't be in a large company and put yourself in the founder's shoes. They're two different pairs of shoes, right? One's flip-flops and one's a hiking boot. I mean, I don't know what the metaphor is, but it's two different things. Instead of putting yourself in the founder's shoes, putting yourself in the leader's shoes. If I were a decision maker, how would I make this decision, right? How do I think about doing that? And you can do that at any level you're at in any part of any organization. And if you teach yourself how to think that way, then you will probably be a leader because you'd have to wait for somebody else to think about it for you. The founders aren't always right. I work with so many early stage entrepreneurs and some of the biggest things they do right is the things they do wrong, right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, like they do it wrong and they're like, Oof, that was stupid. Let's try not to do that again. It's more about learning from your mistakes than being the no be all know all person, and something you mentioned earlier that stuck out to me, and even in the book that it seems very contrarian. So when you were speaking to those HR professionals, and I know you mentioned that retention 
is seen as like the metric that everybody wants to, you know, have dialed in. And yet you say it's not a good metric of a great team. Um, if you could elaborate on that. It's terrible, right? Here's Michael. He's been here seven years. He hasn't done shit, but he's still here. Like, what's the point, right? You've got to always, always, always. So my definition of great management is a great manager assembles an amazing team who delivers high quality results for their customers or consumers on time with quality. That's it. But it's always forward looking. Right. It's always about what you do in the future. It's not about did you perform well last year? Well, if you performed well last year in something that we don't need anybody to do well next year, then it doesn't really matter. And it's not you, right? I'm not, I'm not criticizing you personally. I'm just saying, wow, it could be a whole different skill set. The Netflix example that I use in my book is we realize we're going to grow 30% quarter over quarter, three quarters in a row, right? And we go to an executive staff meeting I'm like, what if this keeps happening? You know, what happened to our company? Our CFO goes to the whiteboard and he's doing top line revenue, right? 30% growth, quarter of quarter. He's like, oh my God, it's so much money. And Ted Sarandos, who's now co-CEO of Netflix, says, you know, at the time we would say, someday we'll be as big as HBO. Someday. And he looks at the numbers and he's like, it's next year, you guys. Like, we could be as impactful as HBO next year. We're all like, like, we'd never even thought of that. And our head of uh, products said, you know, that's a third of the U.S. internet bandwidth. So I'm like, could you stay after the meeting? And we could talk. I'm like, does anybody know how to do that? And he says, no. How is it technically possible? And he says, well, it's in the cloud. And there are people that know how to do that more than we do. But you know, maybe it's Amazon, maybe it's Microsoft. I mean, I don't know. But we, so we go back to our IT team, who is absolutely, fabulously, completely and totally managing our data center for DVD by mail. And they're amazing, brilliant, incredible people. And we tell them what the problem is. And they're like, no worries. You guys go exec something. We'll build the cloud. And I said, you know, if anybody in the world could do this, it's probably you, but not in nine months. It's not humanly, we couldn't buy the equipment, right? And so that led to a discussion that was, are we going to miss this opportunity because we don't have the right team? We can't. That's a really different way of thinking about teams in the future and what you want to do and how you want to scale because every problem in the future is different than the one in the past. And that, you know, proactive preparation seems like it's a kind of a, a recurring theme. Um, and, and also, I'd love for you to speak to, because I know this has come up um, a little bit in some of, some of the responses you've given me around just the value of having a highly effective team player, like just somebody who is really, really, really good at what they do versus somebody who's just mediocre, kind of a seat filler. I'm a big believer in you know, the best person in every seat. I did a dinner with a bunch of entrepreneurs and uh, one of them said, you don't really mean that, right? You don't really mean an A player in every seat. And I said, well, in your company, what are you talking about, right? You you must have experience with this. And he said, yeah, but like, you know, you don't like 
payroll, right? The person in payroll doesn't have to be an A player. Really? You don't want the person that's in charge of paying who you think are the A players you know, to be really smart about that. And I said, and by the way, your finance department hates you. You don't know my company. You don't know anything about us. Why are you saying that? I'm like, because you just told me a perfect stranger that you think your payroll person is an idiot. You think they don't know? They know. And so who knows what they're doing behind your back, right, to prove you're wrong or whatever. My, my point is what we think as leaders sometimes are the important jobs that have to have the A players in them is true. But we want people in every job to be really passionate and good at what they do because that's what makes us effective. Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with rapper, singer, and songwriter known by millions around the world, the one and only Flo Rida. During our fireside chat at the 2023 Crisp Game Changers Summit, Flo Rida discussed his entrepreneurial journey and shared his strategies for selecting ventures that align with his values. Oh, I make sure that anything that I'm involved with is second nature to who I am and what I stand for because I never want to be a part of something that I don't see the vision and I don't see it being successful. So it makes my job easy. It makes the person that I'm working with jobs easy. And that way, even in music, I knew the sacrifices that I made early on. So I just applied that as well as me being a fit guy. Anytime that I went to the gym, the more pain I went through, the more I gained. Definitely giving myself to anything that I was passionate about, such as selfies or the other ventures that I have, I already know that I'm going to be successful. I'm a risk taker, but for the most part, I like to dip and dive into things that I have the wisdom and knowledge about. And let's talk about team. I mean, big focus of this community is building a great team and having the people around us. I understand the people that have been with you, been with you for a long time. What do you look for when you're bringing somebody on board? Like, is it loyalty? Is it certain characteristics? Most definitely. I look for those who believe in themselves, first and foremost. That is very important. Those are the people that are going to be loyal to themselves, respect themselves, and that just becomes contagious. Basically, the team around me, like you said, they've been around me since some of them from the start of my career, you know, and anything that I have, what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours. And I like my team to be a reflection of who I am so that when they meet new people, it's all smiles. At the end of the day, we have no regrets. I know coming into this event, when we book speakers, sometimes they'll show up by themselves, maybe with one other person. They were telling us, you're rolling with 17? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what does that makeup look like? I know you mentioned you travel with a trainer. Who else comes trainer, with Trainer, doctor, lawyer. My artists, sometimes chef, guys that does my marketing, guys that does merch, et cetera. Gotcha. Now, I'm sure failure is a part of everyone's story. Can you talk about a time where at any point in your career where just things didn't go your way? Starting out, I was with a group called the Groundhogs, and it was that moment where we would perform at different clubs. And it would always come to this moment where people were like, you guys are good. We want to sign you. And then I ventured off and... I performed at a nightclub one night and rest in peace, my brother from the Two Live crew, he picked me up to go perform with him and I thought, yeah, you know, I've been rapping for a long time. I think this is the moment. That wasn't a moment. Years later, another guy from the group, Jodeci, Devontae Swing, shout out to him. He's definitely one of my inspirations as well as other people. I stayed with him for five years out in LA. No Christmas, no Thanksgiving. I'm a guy who grew up with seven sisters. I'm the only boy, I'm the youngest. I have a twin sister. So I'm like a mama's boy. So I sacrificed those five years 
and nothing came from that. It just shows me that sometimes what you're looking for might be right at home. You just have to nourish it because after all those times that I traveled, it was the one guy who's my manager today, the CEO who's a part of my company that I have today, and circle right back into the fact that now I'm 10 times successful with the guys who actually told me, don't go, stay with me, and I promise you'll have a promising career. I know you talk about that you were rapping for more than a decade before really things took off. How does somebody know from your experience if what they're doing, they're on the right path and they stay on that path or whether they should change it up and go in a different direction? Because 10 years, you know. I think you know when you go out and people are complimenting you, people are gifting you, but more so you know when you tell yourself you're going to do this thing regardless of what people say. You have to be self-motivated, self-driven, and all of those perks, it definitely motivates you, but you just know when you know. And I'm a guy who believe in the gift of God. A lot of these things, people will say, I deserve this or that, but I know we all really don't deserve certain things. We just are fortunate to have gifts. And when you have a gift, just like if a friend of the streets give you a gift, you definitely appreciate it. But when you have a God-given gift, that's something that's very special. So I took the initiative to know that my gift came from God because I've seen so many things happen, so many people say good things about me, and that motivated me. Now, the run that you've had hit after hit after hit, I mean, to have that amount of staying power in an industry not known for its staying power, what do you attribute that to? Oh, for all those times, the countless hours in the studio, the times that I've traveled 20 miles to a concert that was canceled, trying to submit my CDs, the times that I took a Greyhound bus to L.A., not even catching a bus for the first time. That was me catching a bus for the first time. I had never even catching a bus back home in Miami. I didn't know it took three days to get to California. <laughs> and I'm out there. By the time I get there, I have a beard. I get out there, I have no money. I know I have my parents to call, but this was the thing that I set up to do on my own. So I was out there. I remember causing a bomb threat at the Beverly Center because I took my bag. I was thinking Beverly Center is nothing but high end over here. So I set my bag on top of the bus bench go in the mall for a little bit because I heard that a lot of celebrities go there. I thought I was going to meet someone to help me with my music. That didn't happen. I come outside, my bag is missing. I'm like, man, the first place I should probably go is to the gas station across the street. I go to the gas station. I asked the clerk, did he see someone with a bag? He was like, that was your bag? You caused a bomb threat. So now <laughs> I'm left to call the police station. I call the police station and I asked if they have my goods. And they were like, yeah, come right in. So I walk about three miles down to the police station that was the wrong police station. It was another police station in Santa Monica. I get there. When I walked there, I was starving at this point. I called my mom and I finally let them know that I had took this trip to L.A. And it was like, boy, you crazy. You did what? You ain't got no money. So they wound up sending me some money, sent me about 300 bucks. And that was just enough to really get home, get a little bit of food. But when I got to the second police station, the police was just like, I can't release your bag till six in the morning. And he seen me there. He was just like, so why are you out here? And I told him, I came out here to pursue a career in music. So I started giving him my story and everything. He was just, you know what? I'm going to give you your bag early. And if you ever make it in music, I'll be your police score for free. So that's one of the stories that attest to the sacrifices that I made and that I was just like, I can't go back from here. I've come too far. I done made certain sacrifices that say I belong here. So obviously, very successful career, continues to be successful. But I'm curious, what's driving you today? Obviously, you made a lot of money throughout your career. 
She made $80 million in the Celsius suit, but you're still as active as ever. I think a lot of people would sit back, relax a little bit, but you're still getting after it. What's driving you? Man, it's so priceless. Like starting out with my first record, Low, I was just fond of having my song on the local radio station. This record took me around the world to places I couldn't even pronounce. And some of my peers that I looked up to that was very successful had never been there. And they would tell me like, man, don't take this for granted because I've never done this and things like that. So traveling around the world, seeing the smiles of kids to mid-age adults to older adults continuously every night, knowing that they can be making any choice to go do anything else. But that moment, time is priceless. We never get that back. We should never take it for granted. That motivates me. What's been the most interesting place you've been? That could be good or bad. I remember the situation where I got booked to do a gig in Sardinia, Italy. So I get there and I'm on this mega yacht. I see some kids running through the boat. I was like, oh, I'm going to perform for the kids, the parents and things like that. Maybe like an hour go by. And they were like, we're ready to see you perform. I was like, where I'm performing at? It was like on the front of the boat. There was a spot in front of the boat. But I get there and there's only three young ladies there. I'm like, where's the rest of the people? They're like, no, just three people. <laughs> so that was very interesting because they definitely paid a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, so what does the future look like? If you're looking ahead five years, 10 years, what gets you excited? Well, the ventures that I have, the diversified portfolio I have from biotech to real estate to technology and just being the first in some of these areas, as well as I have a promising music career. I walk out and some people call me legend. I mean, <laughs> that as well as just having a great group of people around me that are visionaries, that they have passion, they're driven, that motivates me. If you could go back, let's say right when you were starting your career, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? My advice would be, in order to be blessed, you have to accept the process. I realized that I wouldn't change a thing because the process has made me great. The process has helped so many people around the world. The process and what I wanted to do things wasn't God's time and I'm on God's time, so. When you go back home, just the people that you grew up with, do you still keep up with any of those relationships? Yes. Some of the people that I've grown up with, they're with me right now today. Some of the people with me on the road. I have a couple businesses in the community that I've grown up with. So a lot of time when I go home, I get a chance to see them. So I still interact. One thing about my mom, my family, we always thrive on. You never forget where you come from. This is what made you. You know, it's all about your roots. The roots is the route of overcoming the struggle. You know, and I've overcame the struggle, and I want to inspire and still be inspired. Well, let's talk about giving back. I know this has been, you know, philanthropy has been something that's been very important to you. What types of things are causes that you're passionate about? I have a charity called Big Dreams for Kids. And from day one, I recall one of the guys, I love playing football, but I was always shy. Even with me doing the music, I was always shy. And I recall going out to a, a youth football league and one of the guys, since I didn't want to play football, one of the coaches used to carry a radio and get the team hype. So he let me take on that position to get the team hype, playing the radio and everything like that. Basically, that motivated me to start my own youth football league. The first year I started 
in the music. Right now, I have over 10,000 kids for the Florida Youth Football League. That's cheerleading, that's track and field, that's basketball, that's football. And this is something that we work with the kids every day. And more importantly, we work with them is letting them know that education is first. And we have a couple kids down in the NFL and some that are on their way. To close out this episode, we revisit my conversation with Richard Montañez, former vice president at PepsiCo, best-selling author, and the inspiration behind the hit film Flamin' Hot, which showcases the inspiring story of how he rose from janitor to vice president by channeling his Mexican-American heritage and upbringing to turn the iconic Flamin' Hot Cheetos into a snack that not only disrupted the food industry, but also became a global pop culture phenomenon. One of Richard's key business principles is act like an owner. During our conversation, he shared the genesis of this philosophy in his own journey. First time I heard that was from, you know, Roger Enrico. Uh, he was the CEO of Frito. He was the CEO of Pepsi. And this is what really wild is. He was running Pepsi, and he was 37 years old. He's the guy that hired Michael Jackson. He's the guy that created the Cola Awards. Before he took over, Pepsi was never mentioned. It was always Coke. And then he took over and, you know, started the Cola Wars, you know, and did all this stuff. They asked him to come over to Frito-Lay and do the same thing because Frito-Lay was struggling. So he came over and, you know, he, he sent out this video because, again, that was the communication. There was no email. There was no, it was a video or a fax. And in that video, he said, uh, I want everybody to act like an owner. I'm giving you the opportunity to think like a CEO. And everybody, it was about a thousand people. Uh, never been done before because in production, you never shut anything down. They shut the plant down. So we thought we were going to get laid off or fired. And here we hear this thing. I was on the maintenance crew, you know, mopping, cleaning, industrial cleaning. My whole team said, oh, that's just corporate stuff. He's not talking to us. Certainly not talking to you, Richard. I've done something I've done my entire life since I was a child. As I broke ranks. And what I like to teach young people in universities, you have to understand when it comes to opportunity, opportunity is never given to you. Your opportunity is created. If you're waiting for it, you're going to die. It's not coming. You create it. Anywhere you want, there's an opportunity. I saw, I said, are you guys crazy? You know, here's the uh, CEO telling the janitors that we could act like owners. And Richard, I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't ask about the, the flaming Hot Cheetos because, you know, since that came to be, it obviously has expanded to a full product line. It's rejuvenated the brand. It's garnered, you know, billions now in revenue. I'm, but I'm just curious from, from your experience, how did the idea for, for the Flamin' Hot Cheetos come to be? And then when did you know that you were really on something? Again, after kind of the uh, acting like an owner, right? You know, I started writing ideas down. You know, what do I want to do? And, I, you know, Judy said, well, if you're going to act like a CEO, you need to understand the, the business. And again, this is too kids from the hood, you know, just dreaming out loud. Well, you know, uh, we couldn't laugh at each other. And she would say, well, you know, if you're going to act like an owner, Richard, you have to understand what is the company about. You're going to have to know everything. So when that video came out, I said, okay, you know, I started putting on my Goodwill suit, you know, walking around the house, you know, and dreaming about things that how would I act if I was a vice president? How would I, you know, if I was in marketing, what would I do? If I was in sales, what would I do? Again, you know, we're dreamers, right? You're a dreamer, you know. Set your dreams loose, you know. And the best place to do that is the safety of your home with the people that love you. You know, I, my, my, my kids were, were young boys, but I was showing them, Dad, what are you doing in that suit? I said, one of these days, I'm going to be wearing this every day. 
you know, you can too. So I figured, well, I need to know how to sell. I was a salesman because I'd been selling my whole life. But I needed to know technically how to sell. So I went to the sales office. It was right next door to the, to the uh, operating office. And I found a salesman and I, and I told him, hey, can I, can I go with you on my day off? I'll do all the work. I just want you to teach me the business. And he was, he was pretty happy, you know, free labor. You know, and he said, yeah, on your day off, meet me at 5 o'clock in the morning. Because, you know, the sales guys start at 5 in the morning. So I got there. He taught me how to uh, write an invoice, how to load the truck so we could uh, maximize the space, you know, load as much as, as possible. Then he taught me how to run a route so that we could, you know, minimize our fuel and maximize our time. Then when we got to the store, he taught me how to merchandise. See, when you, when you see products on the shelves, you know, there's four shelves, you know, five shelves. There's a system that we use. We want you to bend down for this product. We want you to reach up for this product. You know, eye level is this product. It's not just, let's just fill up the rack. It's, you know, it's a schematic. So there we were uh, loading it up. And it was uh, Lage Ruffles Fritos. Second store, Lage Ruffles Fritos. Third store, Lage Ruffles Fritos. Maybe sour cream. Maybe barbecue, Lay's Ruffles Fritos. Everywhere it was Lay's Ruffles Fritos. And then I looked and I saw something, and I've said this many times, you know, it's part of my teaching is that all you need is one revelation to create a revolution. What is a revelation? A revelation is something that was always there, but it's been unveiled or revealed to you. It was always there. And I looked and I saw this revelation that was going to create a revolution. What was, what did I see? I saw the spice rack. I saw people buying the little jars of uh, spices, you know, the Lowry salt and the chilies. And I thought, like, and I looked at us, Lay's Ruffles Fritos, Lay's Ruffles Fritos, spices. And I looked at him, my trainer, he couldn't see it. You know why he couldn't see it? Because he was an expert. I tell people today, don't be such an expert that you can't see things anymore. I've had thousands of people that reported to me. And I said, don't bring me ideas everyone can see. Bring me ideas no one can see. You know, ideas are hidden in the 4D. We live in 3D. So I thought, okay, I need to create a spicy product. So I went and told Judy, you know, and Judy's a wonderful cook. I said, we're going to put your, your chili on a chip. She's ready to roll with me. Sounds great. Which one? I didn't know. I thought, Blaze, Doritos. I don't know. Then one day... I used to cash my check at the neighborhood grocery store called Ontario Ranch Market. I'd go there because he would cash my check and knew me by name. You know, I didn't have a bank account. And I tell people, why did you have a bank account? I didn't have no money. What do I need a bank account for? You know, I'd cash my check at the liquor store. I'd cash my check there, you know, buy groceries. And on the weekend, there was this young man, his two daughters and his wife. And this young man was always dressed really clean and nice and so was his family. And he was selling corn on the cob. He was selling this before street vending was popular. Today, you know, it's popular to have a mobile truck. You know, but back in those days, it was, it was seen, again, you're from the other side of the track. Don't, don't come on this side with that garbage. And I would see him and he would grab, you know, greet me with such a, a kind handshake. And, you know, and he still inspired because no one told him he was a street vendor. He acted like he was running a five-star restaurant. And I believe that, you know, he's probably running a five-star restaurant today. So, you know, I bought the corn, and, you know, 
he put everything on it, you know, butter, chili, cheese, lime. It was just delicious for a buck. I bought two, one for him and one for me. And uh, I took a bite. Then I took a second bite. When I took the second bite, I, I just stared at it. And I said this, a revelation, something that was always there, but it's been revealed. I said, that looks like a Cheeto. And I said something that I believe every great leader has to say. I said two words, what if? What if I put chili on a Cheeto? What if I start my own business? What if I go to a university? What if I apply? What if I go for that book? What if? As the beginning of greatness. I said, what if I put chili? So I ran it and I told Judy, Judy, I got it. We're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to put. And she said, great. So she said, go get some Cheetos with no cheese on it. You know, because they've already, you know, uh, Cheetos already come with the cheese. So I, I went to the plant, got some, brought it home and, Sure enough, it took us a couple of times, and we got it right. She took some her work. I took some to my work. Everybody loved it. Came back, and she said, you got to call the CEO. Now, you have to uh, keep in mind or imagine that this is during when corporate America was a command and control. What is command and control? Exactly that. I didn't hire you to think. I hired you to do what I tell you to do. You know, as I speak across the, the country and some of the biggest companies in the world, you know, I'm still amazed when I still see some companies still trying to survive under the command and control. So you didn't do those kind of things. You didn't call the CEO. So I went and uh, I found the, the phone book because that was a communication. There was no email. It was a corporate directory. So I picked up the phone and I called. And Patty, his assistant, uh, still my friend today. She's been retired for a few years. Uh, I said, hi, this is Richard Montañez. I'd like to talk to the CEO. And she said, well, what area do you run? I don't recognize the name. Because remember, she, she knew all the presidents. She knew the seniors. And no one else would call. You know, a vice president wouldn't even call the CEO. So I said, no, I work in California. Said, oh, okay, you're the president of California? I said, no, I work in Southern California. Okay, you're the vice president of SoCal. I said, no, I, I work in the plant. She said, oh, vice president of operations? I said, no, I work inside and side. And she said, are you the director? No. Plant manager? No. She said, what are you? I said, I'm. You know, I used the fancy word. I said, I'm the maintenance technician. And I said, wait, wait, don't hang up, though. I saw his video, and he said, act like an owner. And I made this product, and I began to tell her all this stuff. And then I said, you know, by the way, I was employee of the month, two months in a row. I don't know what she told him, but I believe that uh, she told him, Mr. Enrico, you have a janitor on the other line that's created his own product. He saw your video. You need to take this call. You need to talk to him. He's doing exactly what you need. Matter of fact, Roger, you need him more than he needs you. Because when Roger got on the phone, he was so excited. You know, and he said, I'll be there in two weeks. So that day came. They all came into town. And this was history because in those days, command and control, CEOs and executives didn't go to plants. They went to high-level marketing meetings. They went to Wall Street. They went to go visit the other CEOs. They never came to see a plant. You know, if somebody, you know, baked something, they didn't go to the plants. That was almost kind of beneath them. But this day was everyone. Every, you know, the CFO was there, chief marketing officer, chief legal officer, you know, you name it, they were all there. I'm doing a presentation. I've never even done homework. I don't know what that looks like. You know, I'm just trying to go off memory of, you know, watching other people, you know, movies and things like that. And, but I was doing it. I had their attention. And I always warned everyone. And I said this, you know, I don't care what room you're in. 
There's always someone in the room who's going to try to steal your destiny. Your job is to uh, be ready not to allow it to happen. So sure enough, the presentation was going great. And one of the executives in marketing raised up his hand. And I literally turned my back to him because I knew what that meant. You know, and he called out my name. Richard, I have a question. I thought, oh, man, we don't have time for questions. And I said, I said that. I said, sir, we don't have time for questions. And he said, it's a simple one. I said, okay. And he said, um, how much market? He goes, this is all great, but how much market share are we talking about? So I said, market share. And I remember the, we call them gondolas, the racks, how wide they are, how long they are. You know, it could be four feet, could be eight feet. Could be 24 feet, 52 feet, depending on the size of groceries, you know. With the most ridiculous smile, I stretched out my arms and I said, this much market share. You could hear the giggles. And you could hear the market executives say, did he just say this much market share? That was a pretty stupid statement I said. You know, it was ridiculous. But you have to always understand this. Many times greatness will come in a ridiculous form. I think every time greatness comes, it comes in ridiculous form. If you're not willing to look ridiculous, you will never achieve your greatness. The person that's sitting, sitting to the left of me is the CEO, Roger Enrico. He stood up and he addressed his team. He said, ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that Richard just showed us how to go out to that much market share? He was a visionary. And he took that ridiculous statement and set me up for greatness. You know, because he could see the things that other people couldn't see. Now, when you're in marketing or in sales, people will always teach that, you know, you, you have to have, you know, the vision to see things. But you also have to have the vision to see the ideas of other people. I'm going to give a huge thank you to all the incredible guests who shared their insights during this season of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.